prayers this last week. I did uh, fall ill on uh, Friday, I think. I started feeling kind of ill and went throughout the week, and uh, I finished up, I guess, my illness on Friday. Thursday, by Thursday, I was good. So it was, uh, it was a pretty bad flu. And uh, yeah, and today we are praying for Rich and Eileen. They, uh, they also have, um, they have contact. I don't know what they have right now, but uh, she has pneumonia and he is not feeling well also. So let's keep them in prayer uh, as well. Uh, anybody else we can pray for today? Any other prayer requests that you may have before we go uh, get started? Yes. Adrian is sick? Okay. All right, well, we'll keep Adrian in prayer and um, we'll see how, how he's doing much later. For Terry as well. Okay, very good. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you with our Bibles opened and the word ready to be heard and read. And we come, Lord, expecting uh, a word from you, not from this uh, vessel, this broken vessel, not from this uh, finite uh, vessel, Lord. We, we have, I have all sorts of fails and failings and, and just the, the wretchedness that I know that I have. You, you, you died on the cross for me. Uh, it was for me that you died on the cross, Lord, and we just thank you for that, and, uh, and, and I thank you for that. But Father, this morning we come before you to recognize your word, you and Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask, Father, that you minister to us even now as we are attentive to your word, and as we join together in, in unison as one in agreement, as we lift up these prayer petitions. Father, we pray for Richard and Eileen. We pray you continue to bless them and help them as they uh, overcome whatever it is that's been coming up, uh, on them, Lord. I thank you for the many prayers and, and just the lifting up of encouragement that we received throughout this last week. We pray for Adrian as well, and we pray that your, your hand is upon him and that you help him to, to heal and to, and to be much better. And we also pray for Terry. Uh, we thank you, God, for her life, that she's been a, a fixture here at this church for many years. Uh, and, Lord, we just know that you're still going to continue to do some awesome work through her. And Lord, we pray for those that uh, haven't been with us for some time, like Joan, and uh, and for um, and also Lucy and, and Manny and, and Marcella. And we just thank you for their life, and we pray God that you just help them wherever they may be. For Ralphie, and uh, just the many things that he's gone through throughout these past few years. Uh, and so, Lord, we lift them all up to you. We come before you humble. We come before you expectant. We come before you, Lord, uh, ready. We know that uh, throughout this this time that we have together that we will be distracted within our mind. Uh, our mind will, will tend to wander. We may even start to doze off. And, and Father, we know that those are all things that uh, the enemy employs to keep the word from us. And so I pray that you just give us the discernment to be able to stay focused upon your word and see what it is that you have to say for us today. So thank you once again, Lord, for all that you do. Lead us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen, amen and amen. Okay. Uh, we are in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. We finally got to chapter 3 of Philippians. And, and you know, I really like this verse because there's uh, the very first verse that I, that I see here. There's two chapters left over, chapter 3 and chapter 4. And, and this is, I guess you would say, my proof text, my verse for my excuse. And when I finally say, okay, finally, and everybody says, okay, good. What do you mean finally? He's going on for about like a half an hour or more. What do you mean finally? Well, that's exactly what Paul does here in verse one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So Paul says finally, but then he goes on and continues to talk and write and, and he continues to lead the church into these areas that he wants the church to know and he wants them to see what it is that they have to do.
do. He's already talked to us about how we are to follow the example of Christ, how we ought, we ought to be like-minded like Christ. Let each of you not look on only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to explain how Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself of the, God's glory. He emptied himself of all the things that were possible for him to take off, yet he was still God, but he was Jesus Christ. But what Paul's example here, he's trying to say, is, you know, we need to empty ourselves of ourselves. We can't take away the glory of God in our life because, well, we don't, we're not actually God. Jesus Christ was. But what we can do is empty ourselves of ourselves, of our pride, of our arrogance, of our insolence, of our, all those angry things, the things that, we, that make us tick or tick us off. And Paul is saying, empty yourself. Be like Christ. Not only do you want to empty yourself by taking on the form, we ought to be servants as Jesus Christ was, being born in likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this is a high order. This is a tall order for us Christians that are struggling through life and just the very little things. And I, and I don't mean to belittle the things that you're going through. Many of you are going through some heavy, heavy trials and tribulations. But compared to the cross, compared to the death, compared to everything that Jesus Christ endured, he left this place where he was being praised and worshipped and adored by the angels and the redeemed and the saints that were there and loving on Jesus Christ. He left all of that to come down to earth, to be a man, to be a servant, to, to death, but death on the cross, the worst type of death. And we explain that death. It could have been any other type. As a matter of fact, the Jews' favorite type of execution was stoning. You know, this is what the Bible had called, and they almost tried to stone Jesus Christ. But the Father says, no, in Isaiah 53, I've already said it 750 years ago. It's already been stated, he will die on a cross. He will die crucified. He will die marred. He will die in such a way to pay the penalty, the transaction that took place, the atonement that God said, I'm going to unload everything, every sin of every person on Jesus Christ so that you will not have to pay that penalty. And what, what, what uh, Paul is saying is that, you know, Jesus Christ emptied himself, he humbled himself, he came obedient to death. He says, we ought to be that way. That's a tall order. And so it, sometimes it takes us a little bit of a time to really grasp that. How do I do that? What does that look like? You know, how, does, how do I understand or how do I know if I've even come to that place or come to that point to where I've actually be, I'm becoming more and more like Christ? Because that is your goal, believer. That is your goal. Your goal is to become Christ-like. Jesus Christ didn't save you to be happy. You know, though happiness is going to come to you because you serve Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you can be holy. Holiness is what God desires for your life. Holiness is what he says that you need to be a part of. Holiness, not happiness. And it's interesting because most people, they strive for happiness. And they even proclaim it. Doesn't God want me to be happy? No, he wants you to be holy. And the interesting thing is, when you pursue holiness, guess what? Happiness is a byproduct of it. However, on the flip side, it doesn't work. When you pursue happiness, it doesn't produce holiness. Usually it produces a very selfish and spoiled individual that wants more, just to stay happy. And we try the church, and we try the choirs, and we try the groups and the Bible studies for men, for women. We try these youth camps, and we try all kinds of things so that we can be happy. And God says, I want you to be holy. 
That's my desire for you, to become like Jesus Christ. And so that is a tall order. And last week, uh, excuse me, a couple weeks ago, Paul tells us that we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We need to work that out somehow, not work for it. If you're saved, you work it out. And, and so again, going back to the sanctification process that God is bringing us through. If you remember, I said you were saved. That's regeneration. You are saved. That's sanctification. You will be saved. Salvation past, salvation present, salvation future. Salvation past is the regeneration process. You're born again. It's a one-time event. The sanctification process that you're going through in life right now is preparing you for eternity. Eternity, the day that I die, Jesus Christ returns. We are glorified into the presence of Jesus Christ, into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so that's the process that we're in now. And Jesus is the model. He's the target. He is the one, and we'll talk about this next week. He is what I set my mind to do. Not that I've been there, not that I've achieved this yet, but I, that's my goal. That's my mark. And we'll talk about that next week. And so Paul says, you, you know, work out your salvation. And, and then he gives us this little portion of scripture about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he's talking about, you know, the, his ministering to them. And, and in, it, it, in, it, in that portion of scripture, we were able to pull out, you know, Timothy was a servant. He was a young man. He was an experience. God, God raised him up. Paul trained him and sent him out. And he was young in a church of a bunch of people that thought they knew what they were talking about. And Paul says, don't let them intimidate you. As a matter of fact, take care of things at home and, and in your life. And, and, and you know, don't stress out so much. You're such a young man. Flee from those youthful passions that you have. And Paul trained him and developed him. And he became a great man of God as far as the church in Ephesus is where he was a pastor. And then he talks to us about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was another servant. He was a fellow soldier, a fellow worker, uh, uh, the one that was a minister and one that was a messenger. And, and, and we, each one of us, as, as you saw last week, each one of us, we can be one of those three people. We can be an Epaphroditus, a uh, behind-the-scenes kind of guy. We can be a leader within the church, like Timothy, or we can be that, that, launch, that, that pastor that launches others out and builds others up, like Paul. And so those are attainable goals that we can actually look at because each one of them are following the example of Christ. And Paul is calling, follow our example as we follow the example of Christ. So, so today, what Paul says, you know, he says, finally, he says, I want to just share with you just one last thing. And then he goes on and on. And on. So let me just start off by saying, finally, as I'm getting ready to conclude, now you know, we get, you know, we know we're just now getting started. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul is telling them rejoice. I want you to rejoice. I want you to be happy. I want you to understand that you have a lot of opposition against you. Now, one of the things that I have been accused of uh, as I speak against other churches or other pastors or other leaders that I, I, I just evidently see and I, I, I see it uh, in their teaching and in their their. Uh, doctrine and, and how it just goes off in a whole different directions and it's all about me and the feelings and and so you know I've brought that out to, here at church and I've said just a few words in uh, in the messages and, and I've been approached and one one couple that came to church one time they came up to me and they says you know I really don't like people that talk about other pastors I don't like pastors that talk about other pastors you know that's just unbiblical that's just unchrist like you shouldn't be doing that that's just that's just wrong and I've had that conversation with a lot of people when they said that to me. You know, and I just want you to know something. I don't think you really want me to be biblical as I describe some of these leaders. Because if you want to see biblical, here it is. Paul says in verse 2, Look out for the dogs 
Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He says, look out for those guys. Paul was always on it. Jesus Christ called them a brood of vipers. Uh, so did John the Baptist, a bunch of hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, those that take advantage of women as they pastored the churches, those that are like empty clouds with no rain, just a bunch of promise and a bunch of fluff. To get biblical would be pretty devastating for a person like myself. We don't have a huge church as it is or a following as it is. And, and to get biblical, I just point out the error. And yeah, people get mad because the error has been pointed out. But that's our responsibility as a church. When Paul says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. He's talking about, I want you to know something. You need to look out for those dogs. Dogs was a very harsh word, and dogs were considered, excuse me, Gentiles were considered to be the dogs of society. And what Paul is referring to is a group of people called the Judaizers. Now, we know this because of his teaching that he's done in Galatia. And in Galatians, we talked about the Judaizers, those that were trying to add more to the faith of your life in Jesus Christ. <coughs> excuse me. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's it. And there was a group of people, these religious leaders that said, you know, well, that's good, They're, you know, because we're Jewish and Jesus is Jewish and you're converting them to Judaism. They need to be Jews as well. So they need to get circumcised as well. They need to be the ones that need to be circumcised and show that they are true Jews so they can be truly saved. And Paul says, no, you know, you have to be Jew because you're Jewish, but everyone else, no. You know, there, there's four things that they had asked. You know, don't drink the blood of a strangled, don't drink the blood of an animal. Don't eat the meat of a strangled animal. And he says, don't, uh, don't commit adultery or stay away from uh, sexual, sexual deviancy. He says that. And there was another one I can't really remember right now. But, but he says, these are the things that they need to stay away from. Yeah. The, just, you know, those things that we as Jews are supposed to do, this is just common sense. Don't do these things as a Christian. You're, you're now a new believer. But as far as the law is concerned, that was the law. You know, it doesn't have any hold on us anymore. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And we are called to follow Jesus Christ because He is the law. The law was put there so that we can see that we cannot be perfect. We, we, we can see that we cannot attain what God has called us to be. The law was put there to show me my sin, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7. It was put there to show me how bad I am so that I can realize and recognize that it's only going to be by the grace of God that He's going to save me because I can't work for it. I can't do anything for it. And so we are told over and over again in Scripture, as a matter of fact, today, I'm going to read this portion of scripture, which I generally do, turn to Galatia, uh, excuse me, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17, here's the, here's the instructions that Paul is given to the people in Corinth. And in verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Paul had heard stories of them having this love feast, which is what they called the Lord's Supper, this love feast. They would bring food, they would bring wine, and they would break bread together, and they would, they would do as Jesus Christ did with His disciples. And so Paul says, you know, when you guys come together, it's not for good. It's actually for the worst thing possible that you guys are doing. For in the first place, he says, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe in part. For there must be factions among you in order to, for those who are genuine among you may be recognized. 
When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. For in eating, one, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Would you not have homes or houses to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? What Paul was saying was this. You know, some of you guys come to the church. You know there's going to be food there. It's going to be a potluck. And you try to get there before anybody else. And you drink all the wine. You eat all the food. And by the time the working class, those that have, you know, jobs and things that they're doing at home, they show up. Pretty much you guys are drunk and full and everything's gone. It's because you guys aren't getting together for the Lord's Supper. You're doing it just to take advantage of everything else and everyone else. Paul says, should I commend you in that? I hear that this is what's happening. You know, the Lord's Supper should be a reverent and a very uh, time of reflection of what the cross means. It points us to the, to the past, but it also points us to the future, as we'll see here in just a little bit. Because Paul goes on to say, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread. And I'll read this to you in just a little bit as well as we take the Lord's Supper. And what, what Paul is saying here is, I received this from the Lord. As a matter of fact, in my Bible, if you have a red-letter Bible, this part, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me, was stated by Jesus Christ to Paul. And it's interesting because Paul didn't know Jesus Christ until after he had died. And this letter is, is believed to be the first letter, actual letter, before even the Gospels were written. And this letter to the people in Corinth is being given to Paul by Jesus Christ somehow, somehow in, in an encounter. After he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, Saul was converted over to Paul, and he was in the, in the desert for three years. And it is believed that in that three-year period time, Jesus Christ was discipling him and showing him, this is what the law said. This is who I am. And that's how Paul became this super apostle. He had a you know, face-to-face conversation, time with Jesus Christ. And so Paul says this, As I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. He's telling them, on the night he was betrayed, this is is what he said. This is what he said. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And a lot of the disciples said, well, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, the apostles taught us that. In the same way, also, he took the cup, saying, this is a cup, a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup and proclaim the Lord's death, until he comes. You see, it looks back, proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. This is the part that I generally omit and that I have to capitalize on today. Verses 27 and on. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. See, what Paul is saying is that we ought to examine ourselves. There needs to be an examination of our life on a regular basis. You need to examine yourself. Am I in the faith? Am I being deceived? Have I been following a, a, a different gospel? Is, am I trying to serve and am I trying to win my way to salvation? Am I trying to do things so that I can be saved? And Paul says, you need to examine yourself and you need to check yourself out. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, 
so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. What Paul is saying, you know, when you come together, I mean, the, the most important part here is the discerning, the examining, the part. The rest of it, we don't have as the Lord's Supper. Now, we've had functions where we come together, and uh, there's just some people that want to be first, and, you know, we don't want to stop them. But whenever we have a function, whenever we have a fellowship, whenever we have a potluck and, and we gather together as a church, one of the things that we typically do is we ask all our volunteers, excuse me, all our visitors to go first. Those that we've invited to be a part of our church, we allow them to go first. And, of course, the elderly and, and those the children to be able to, everybody to get something to eat. And, and, and what it is, it's this fellowship of eating and I mean, of time of gathering together. It's not a time to stuff our faces, okay? It's not a time that we, we want to get so full. So, you know, eat a little bit, partake of the fellowship, be a part of what we're doing. And if you're still hungry, go to McDonald's, <laughs> you know? You were going to go to McDonald's anyways, you know? Stop at Burger King. Go, go to the, the new Albertos that's opened up here on the corner, you know? Grab a couple tacos on the way home. You know, but, but to be honest with you, every time that we've gotten together and people have brought food, we've always had enough. Amen. And, and it, it seems like there's some that just, you know, make a beeline to the table and stack their plates up really high like there's not going to be enough. You know, I'm not talking about you guys. You guys have been always great. But there's people that just want to be there, first of all, you know. And, and what, what Paul is saying, you know, you got to examine yourself. Yeah. And it's not about the food. It's more about the fellowship, the time that we are able to spend together. And, and what Paul is saying is examine yourself. you got to check yourself out. Uh, as a matter of fact, in uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself, he says, yeah. or, yeah. You, or do not or you do not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Yeah. And he says, test yourself. Yeah. How do I test myself? Well, I just gave you some examples. You got Jesus Christ, you got Paul, you got Timothy, you got Epaphroditus. Yeah. And I'm going to share with you just a little bit more on how to test yourself. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, Paul says this, let a person examine himself then, so to eat of the bread, and before he eats of the bread, drinks of the cup. In Jude chapter 1, verse 4, actually Jude only has one chapter. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who, no longer, who, lo who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What, what, what Jude is saying, what Paul is saying to Jude is he's saying, you know, there's people that are creeping into the church. They come in and they, they say they're saved, they say hallelujah, they praise God, and they do all these things. But you know what? There's something just not right. There's something not right about their salvation. They tell you that, well, yeah, you got to be saved, you got to pray the prayer, but you also have to go knock on doors, or you have to do this, or you have to do that. You, you need to speak in tongues, which is an unbiblical concept of if you're not, if you're not speaking in tongues, there's a, a, a group that say that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. And there's certain things that they, they qualify your salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. And we have to understand what does that mean in our life? How do I get there? How do I get to this point of understanding? You know, and, and I know, as I said, I, I've had people tell me, you know, that's just not unbiblical. Well, you know, in, in the Bible, it teaches that salvation is by grace alone. And those who teach otherwise, the Bible says, are ravenous wolves. How's that? or purveyors of demon doctrines, yeah. those that teach doctrines of demons that yeah. are saying, no, no, it's not Jesus. Jesus Christ is not enough. Yeah. 
You got to have something more. You got to get that second blessing as if the cross is not enough. And, and Paul says they're purveyors, they're demon, they, they, they push this demon doctrine on people. Uh, those are who usher people onto the broad road to hell. If they teach another gospel, Paul says they should be cursed. They should be cursed and, and, and cursed again and, and one more time, you know, stomped on and, and then buried and then pulled out of the ground and cursed again. That's how, that's how Paul says even if us or an angel, if anybody came to you with a different gospel, that is just one of the biggest curses that you can have. You know, the, un the unfortunate thing is, is that for a lot of people, they don't understand. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? What is the gospel? And we try to clarify it as best we can. The gospel message is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. That's, he died on the cross for those that are His. And, and that goes into a whole different facet. But bottom line, He died for those that are His. And when you understand that the bad news, number one, you can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. And here's some reasons as to why it is that you cannot save yourself. Because number one on your outlines, you see, some count on religious activity to save themselves. In your outlines, some, some people count on religious activities to save themselves. Paul is saying, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those guys that try to add more to what already has been there. You, you don't add anymore. You, you, you gotta, for, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. It's not by what I do. He says there in verse 4 and 5, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. You see, number one, some count on religious activity. Okay. Some count on religious activity. You know, I know the Bible. I, I go to church. I even tithe. I've gotten baptized. I'm going to take part of the Lord's Supper today because the more that I do this, the more I'm going to get saved. You know, God will be pleased with who I am. And if you know anything about Saul, who is Paul, Saul himself... He, 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 was, he was on fire. He says here, you know, if anyone's going to have anything, if, if you're trying to count your blessings and say you have every right and every reason to be a Christian, to be saved, and you think that you've done it all, let me share with you something. And he says, I was one of those types of people. He says, I have more. If you think that you have a reason for confidence in your own self, in your own flesh, in your own life, Paul says, I have more, because I, I know, I know where I stood. I was circumcised on the eighth day, point number one. I mean, my parents made sure that I was a Jew of the Jew, and we followed the law perfectly. On the eighth day, they didn't wait for the ninth day, they didn't wait until after the ninth, they didn't wait for the seventh day or the sixth day, it was the eighth day. And there are, my parents brought me in, and I'm, I'm a proud Jew. And circumcision is a big part of the Jewish ritual. It, it, it is so holy to the Jews that it, it's even more holy, well, for the Jews, of course, than any kind of relationship that they have with God or with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, they have no relationship to Him. And, and it is kind of that type of um, act, a religious act, that a lot of people have that they want to, you know, either get baptized or, you know, if I, if I don't get baptized, I'm not saved. Or they want their children to be blessed or baptized as well or, or to be dedicated to the Lord. And, and baptizing or dedicating the children to the Lord, it's not going to get them saved any more than it's not going to get you saved. And I can dedicate you and I can dedicate your kids, I can baptize you, but it's not the religious activity. 
that saves you. Paul says, you can't have any confidence in what you can do. All this going to church and tithing and giving. He says, you know, my parents, we were strict Jews. You know, I was only eight days old, but I know because I got the certificate. I got it on my wall. And he says, and on the eighth day, and he says, of the people of Israel. He was of the people of God. Israel is God's people, the chosen tribe. They are the ones who God loves and chose. And he didn't choose them because they were the greatest. As a matter of fact, there was only one guy. His name was Abraham. And God told him, I know Abram, your name is Abram, exalted father. I'm going to change your name. What are you going to change it to? I'm going to change your name to Abraham, the father of many. And Abraham would walk around and say, hey, so what's your name? My name is uh, Father of Many. Really? How many kids do you have? None. You know, <laughs> how does that work out? You don't have any kids, but yet that's who he was, the Father of Many. And out of that came the Jewish nation. And it wasn't because they were great. Or it was counted to Abraham as righteousness because of his faith. It was by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God. He chose Abraham. And it was by faith that Abraham said, I'll go. And it was by Christ alone. See, in the Old Testament, it's always been by the grace of God. It's always been by faith. It was counted to Abraham righteousness because of his faith. Because it's by faith is what gets you saved. And Abraham looked forward to the cross. He looked forward to the Messiah. He looked forward to the punishment of the Christ. And we look backwards to the cross. See, Old Testament and New Testament, and we all meet in the middle. And they were saved in the same way we were. The only problem with the Old Testament, they didn't have a clear idea. They had this prophecy. They had this notion of Messiah coming and establishing a kingdom. And they, they, they understood that Messiah was to suffer, but they didn't believe how he was going to suffer. What they wanted to believe in more was the kingdom of, of, uh, of God. And Paul says, I'm, I'm of that people. He says, not only am I of that people, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That's the tribe that Messiah is supposed to come from, which it is. And it was the smallest group, of the Hebrew of the Hebrews. And he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. You know me, a, a Pharisee was really a good type of person that understood the law, read the law, and, and read it forwards and backwards. He knew the law. And Paul was so versed in the law, he was, he was on fire for the Lord because of what the law had said to him. But Paul says, you know what, those are the things that I, you want to count your righteousness, the good things that you, th you think you do? And these Judaizers that are chasing you guys and telling you that you got to put more on top of what Jesus Christ has already done, well, you know what, I have more to boast. I don't think there's anybody like me. And I don't think Paul was bragging, and I don't think he was boasting about himself, what he was trying to do is make a comparison. Some of you guys are out there thinking that you're all that, you know. And I can tell you that I'm, I'm probably more. I've been there. And he says, this is what I have. This is what I've had. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And what happens is in the process of trying to build yourself up, build yourself up, you have this love for yourself and we neglect to love God. 
having the appearance of godliness because I go to church, I wear my suit and tie, I have a big Bible, I've been baptized at least three times this year, i got to get baptized again next year, I take the Lord's Supper, I give big healthy checks to the church, you know, I'm good. By all appearances, I'm good. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. You know what Paul says? He says, avoid such people. Straight out, just avoid them. There are people that you know that walk around, hallelujah, and praise God, and Jesus, and this, and that, and, and, and they turn around, and with the same mouth that they're praising God, they'll cuss you out in just a minute if you, if you aggravate them. And these are the people that Paul is saying, you know, they have this, this form, this, this covering, this appearance of godliness. Paul says, you need to stay away from people like that because, you know what, they're going down, they're going to take you down with them. You know, and the best thing to do is, is what, what, what I, I've tried to do, you know, just, stay, just avoid them. Because what's going to happen is you're going to end up in the flesh as well. And you're going to end up arguing and battling it out. Paul says, just ignore them. And again, in Titus chapter 1, 16, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Okay. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Yes. They pretend and they profess and they call out to God, and they call God to, 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 you know, to lift them up and help them, and, and they ask everyone else, and they're on Facebook praising Jesus and everything else, and their lives are a wreck because they have this outward appearance, and some are trying to count on their religious activity. You know, if I just do enough, if I just do enough, if I just go to church and, and make sure I get there. Some people have tried to get to church to make sure that their sins are being taken away as some do in, in, in the Catholic Church. They'll go and they'll try to get their sins taken away by all the prayers that they say. Number two, you see, some count on working hard to save them. Paul goes on to say this, as to zeal, as to passion, oh, as to what drove me. You know, I was driven to persecute the church. He says, I had this zeal, this, this authority that was given to me to go out and just eradicate anybody that would follow this people of the way. This Christos, this Christ or so. This, and and that, was, that was a derogatory term. They called them Christianos, Christoanos, or like Christ. They were called little Christs, like the guy that got crucified on the cross. That's how you guys are. And the cross was never meant to be a, an emblem of, of, uh, you know, of, of honor and glory and something that you put diamonds on. And, and I understand you know, that people have crosses on their houses and in their cars. And I understand that it's, it's, a, it's a remembrance. And it should be totally with that. But it doesn't make you any holy. You, you know, putting a cross on your neck at that time in those days, it would be like strapping an electric chair to your neck. You know, it would, be, it would be something almost as vile and as wicked and, and, and as heartless to even glorify the cross. And so when we cling to the old rugged cross where my Savior died, we cling to it because we know that that is what Jesus Christ had to endure, not to worship it, not to work hard at it. But Paul had this zeal. He was going into people's homes, these new Christians. He was dragging them out of their homes, men, women, and children, and throwing them in the prison, taking away all their belongings. He, was, he, was, he, he, he allowed and he gave, he gave um, permission, I guess you would say, and, and as, as Stephen was being stoned. And he gave approval as everybody laid their coats at his feet. I'll take care of your coats. You know, your cell phones, your wallets are in there. Here. I'll take care of it. Make sure. Go out and stone this guy. 
And they pick up these big rocks. And the way stoning took place in the New Testament and the Old Testament is they would take people to the high cliff and they would take them to the edge of the cliff and they would throw them down to maim them or to break their legs or their arms so they couldn't go anywhere. From there, from the cliff, they would take these rocks as big as they can grab them and then just toss them on top of these people. And one by one on top of them to kill them. And in that process, as, as Stephen is getting plummeted by these rocks and these stones and, and everything that they're throwing at him, he looks up and he says, I, I see Jesus at the right hand of the Father, standing at the right hand of the Father. The Bible says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Stephen saw him standing in approval. There you go, my servant. Standing there in approval and waiting for him to come on up. And the Bible says that as he said that, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just like Jesus Christ did. And at that, the, the Pharisees, they all got mad. And they tore their clothes and even threw more rocks. And they ended up killing him. That was the form of execution. And Paul was, Saul was this type of man with zeal. He says, I'm going to get rid of all these people. Give me letters. He went to the council. Give me letters. I know where they're at. They're in Damascus. I'm on my way there now, and we're going to take these guys, and we're going to throw them in the jail. I'm going to take all their possessions and teach this group of nobodies to worship only Jehovah God. See, Paul really believed he was doing the right thing. Paul really understood he was doing the right thing. He felt like he was doing the right thing, and he believed it with all his heart until he had an encounter with Jesus. And his life just turned around. See, Paul really believed, but he was wrong. He was wrong, he was wrong, he was wrong. And Paul has given us this testimony. This is what I used to do. I had the zeal of, you you know the persecution that I caused. I'm sure that it hurt him, it pained him to even write this and to remember what he had to go through and what he did and what he caused the brothers to do. I'm sure that it was just not something that he would just laugh off. This is why it's... To me, I I can't understand a person that calls themselves a Christian and still acts and lives in the same manner that he was before. When you have an encounter with Jesus Christ, it changes your life. When you have an encounter with Jesus Christ, it should change your life. Otherwise, you just got wet. Otherwise, you're just eating crackers and drinking juice. Otherwise, you're just kind of hanging out. And and people, Sunday after Sunday, come to church, and, and sometimes they'll come every once in a while. And every, every once in a while they'll come and they'll say, all right, everything's cool, I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm a good person. I do hard work. I work hard for my family, for the church, and I do things. And so therefore I know God is going to be pleased with my actions. Paul says, you ought to see what he says about all this stuff. And I'm going to share that with you in a little bit. <clears throat> in Matthew 19, verse 16, a man came to Jesus Christ and it says, teacher, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? He says, okay, this guy's a rich young ruler. You've heard the story, I hope. And I'm just going to give you the cliff notes on it. He came and he said to Jesus, okay, teacher, what must I do? What must I do? What kind of deeds do I need to do to go to have eternal life? Well, Jesus says, well, you got to obey all the commandments. Oh, I've kept those, all of them from my youth. Honor your father and mother. You know, do not steal. Do not, you know, I've I've done them all. I'm good. (laughs) What else can I do? Jesus says, well, you really want to know what you want to do? I'll tell you what, give it all up. You're the rich young ruler. You got a lot of money. You got a lot of stuff. Give it all away and follow me. And what this young man, we don't have his name, did is he started to take an account. Man, I got a lot of stuff. 
What Paul is sharing here with us, he's sharing with us all the stuff that he had. He had prestige. He had power. He had the influence of the Sanhedrin, the group of people that got together. He had a voice. He had power. He had, he had finances. He had everything he ever wanted, all the gold and silver that you can think of because it was all being brought to the priests, and he would take parts of it. And he had, he had the ability to just say, and people would do. And Paul says, you know, this is what I had. The rich young ruler is saying, this is what I have. And you want me to give that away? And the Bible says that he walked away very sad because he knew he couldn't give it away. He was trying to work for it. In Isaiah 29, 13, it says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. You know, and sometimes we try to generate and try to build up this, this hysteria and this, this feeling and this, uh, this ambiance of, of worship uh, where the, the lights are dimmed and smoke is going and the music is, is moving and the, the same chorus is sung over and over and over and over again and people just get into this hysteria of praising God with their lips and they walk out of there in the same manner. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is not music. Worship is something that we do throughout the week, throughout the day. It's not the music that we sing. Music that is honoring to God should be doctrinally sound, should be stating what, what the purpose of this music that we sing together as one. And Paul says, as the zeal, I mean, I just, this is what I wanted to do. And, and he says, I'm doing all the good things. As a matter of fact, in Revelation, one of the things that, Paul, that Jesus has against the church, he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. You, you have, I mean, the biggest groups, you have the, the largest gatherings, you have the loudest music, you have the greatest productions, yeah, and you have this reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You're dead. You're dead because there is no transformation in your life. Now, I know of a lot of churches that are huge and that are big, and the music is great and awesome, and that doesn't mean that they're dead. That doesn't mean that they've, they've died. It is what it's being produced, the preaching that's being brought out, the message that's being shared with people. That These aren't just stories that, that we're telling. You should be telling. The Word of God needs to be proclaimed. It has to be proclaimed because, see, some people are trying to count on their religious activity. Some people are trying to count on working hard. And number three, some people are counting on their moral righteousness. So, you know, I'm a good person. Every time that I go to a funeral, man, this guy was a good cook, this guy was a good dad, this guy was a good mechanic, this guy was a good uh, whatever. He was a good fireman, he was a good this, he was a good that. He, and because of all these good things, because of all these good things that he's done, we know that he's up there right now, you know, looking down upon us. And never is the word of God shared with the person that, th the things, that these things are not going to save an individual. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us there is no one good. No one. Paul says this. He says, as to righteousness under the law, he says, I was blameless. I kept every law perfectly. Now, not only did I keep the Mosaic law, but I also kept the traditions. I kept everything perfect, blameless. I was on spot. I was on point. I was on point on everything that needed to be done. Paul says, I've done it. I've done it all. Jesus says to the Pharisees, people like Paul, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You tie these burdens on people that you can't even carry, and you make them and you, you cause them to follow these strict rules that you have. And here's a really interesting thing, because I, I need to share this with you. In verse 7, when chapter 3, Paul says this. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, everything that I had, everything that I've had, I'm, I'm just sharing with you that you think you're, you think you're righteous, I have more. And, and look at all the things, that, and you know my life. And all of that, all that prestige, all that power, all that wealth that I had, I gave it up. I gave it up for what? For Christ. And then he goes on to say, everything that I had, he says, it's, it was rubbish. You know, some of your translations will have the word in there, dung. Dung, rubbish, this word that is being used in Greek is probably one of the most vilest, offensive words that can be used of anything. This excrement, this, this ugliness that comes out of your body, you want anything to do with it. it. That's what all these things were to me. That's what all those things are. And the rich young ruler literally walked away with the pile of dung, is what Paul is saying. He walked away with the pile of dung. Paul is saying it's worthless, it's useless, you know, because those things aren't going to get you saved. Your reputation is not going to get you saved. Your religion is not going to get you saved. Your hard work is not going to get you saved. Being good is not going to get you saved. Then why go to church? Why be good? Why try to work, do anything? Why do I need to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? Why do I need to do that? Well, here's on the back of your outline. Here's what really counts. Here's what really counts. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. You see, whatever gain I had, whatever it is that I had, whatever gain I have, I counted as a loss for Christ. He goes on to say um, here, as to zeal, uh, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the sur surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, the one thing I want to know is I want to know, I want, I want to receive the knowledge of Christ. This knowing, this knowledge, this understanding is not just knowing about Christ, because I think most of the world knows about Christ, right? And, and we've deceived ourselves into thinking, well, as long as he knows Jesus, do you know Jesus? And we ask people that, do you know Jesus? Oh, yeah, I know Jesus. Okay, then you're fine. Everything's good. Just as long as you know Jesus. But see, what Paul is saying here is the same kind of knowing or this knowledge as Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 14. This is not in your outlines. But Jesus said this, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. This is an intimate knowledge. This is the knowledge of not only just of, a, of an intellectual ascent. It's not just understanding that the person is present or where he's at, that you can call him at any time. You have, these are not your Facebook friends that you know. These are not just people on your, on your phone. This is an intimate relationship that you have with one person. This knowledge is usually used of a sexual relation within the Bible, like Abraham knew Sarah. 
and they begot a son. Like Adam knew Eve, and they had a son. And this knowledge, this intimate relationship that you have, it's intertwined with the heart of God. And this, this knowledge that, the, that Jesus Christ say, I am the good shepherd. I intimately know my sheep. That's why I died for them. Because I, am, I have this love that is beyond anything you can imagine. I know them. And Paul says, I want to have that knowledge. And not that he didn't have it, but he says, I, I, I know who Jesus Christ is, but it seems like I, I just can't get enough. A genuine believer has this passion, has this desire, has this zeal to know Jesus Christ more and more and more. You dive into His Word. You pray and you talk to Him. You develop this this one-on-one conversation. You sing songs about Him. You try to find out what it is that the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ and His life. You grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you continue to grow and you continue to grow and, and you develop this knowledge Paul says, but whatever I had gained, I counted for loss. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You know what? Those things were just in my way. That prestige, that power, all that was just in my way. I, I, didn't, I wasn't able to focus on Christ because all of that, all the work, all the things that were in my way, just like the rich young ruler, all those things were in his way. He couldn't get to know God because they were in his way. See, in John chapter 17, 3, it says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus, whom you have sent. <coughs> Excuse me. And in 1 John five twenty, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. See, that's why Jesus Christ came, to give you this understanding. When you commit your life to Christ, the very first thing that should happen in your life is this thirst, this desire, this want to know Christ even more so. When, you, when you, we were stating a little bit earlier, how do I know? How do I know that this is, this is what, you know, how do I check myself? How, do I des- you know, how is it that I know that I'm growing? Well, are you desiring Jesus Christ? Are you desiring to know Him more? Are you desiring to spend more time with Him? Are you desiring to to be able to share this this great adventure that you're having with Jesus? Are you wanting to grow in Him? Or do you have all these things in your way that are just rubbish? Do you have these things that are bothering you? And again, I'm not saying get rid of your job. And I'm not saying get rid of your kids. And so you're saying, oh, come on, man, please. I'm not saying get rid of your spouse. There's things that you are responsible for. But you have to... Put those places in their priority. And you've heard this before, God, family, work. You know, and we say that, God first. Okay, well, if God first, let's do it. Jesus had disciples that wanted to follow him. And one says, I'll follow you, Jesus. He goes, well, come with me. You know, foxes have holes and birds in the air have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head. And then the one guy says, okay, well, you know, but first. I'm going to put something else first, but first, you'll be second, okay? Let me take care of my parents. They're, 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 they're going to die, and I'll, once all that's taken care of, i got my inheritance, I'm, I'm set, then I'll follow you. Another one says, yeah, well, I'll follow you too, Jesus, but first, I got something else I'm going to put first. You're, you're important. You, you know, you're there. You're on, you're on my list. You're on the top three, you know, but first. Let me finish up my field. Let me plow everything, make sure it's all taken care of so when I come back, it is done. 
You, see, you can't say, but first. Amen. You, got, you say, God, you're first. Amen. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that that happens. And, and if you want to check yourself, that's one of the first things you want to do. If you committed your life to Christ, your desire should be to desire God even more yes. so. Yes. To please Him. Yes. We're going through a book here just in just yes. some time here. We're going to be going through a book called uh, the, uh, the Doctrines of uh, the Traditional Teachings of Jesus Christ or the, the, of the Bible. The first one is, um, is The Holiness of God. The second one, it's, it's one book. It's three books in one. The Holiness of God, Chosen by God. And the third one is Pleasing God. If you understand God's holiness, you understand you've been chosen by God, pleasing God is the part that you have to just focus on, on how it is. Not that God is unpleasable. Not that you're trying to earn salvation. But again, what you're trying to do is develop this relationship with Him. How do I do that? Well, your first indication is that you want to. You're here. You want to know how to do that. Number two, how do I make things count? Well, I need a, to receive the righteousness of Christ. You see, Paul and all the other people are trying to receive this righteousness on their own work, on their own volition. Yeah. You cannot be righteous on your own. Paul says, and be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, you, you need to receive this righteousness of, of Christ. He is the one that imputes his righteousness on you. When you commit your life to Christ, when you surrender, when you recognize that you are a sinner, that's the bad news, and the good news is, is that He wants to give you salvation, when you recognize that, He imputes, it's called he, he puts on you His righteousness. He takes your sin away, He takes everything that you are away from you, and He gives you His righteousness. And righteousness basically means being right before God. Because if we were to stand before God right now in our sinful state, we, we would all perish. We will all perish. That's why we're going through the sanctification process. And at the end time, when we are together with Christ, we'll be made sanctified. See, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. We've all sinned, and none of us are righteous. And because God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for those that are His, His righteousness was put on you. And so now you are made right before God, not because of your own efforts, not because of anything that you do, but because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Yeah. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 2.24. This is not in your outlines. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds we have been healed. <clears throat> And so when we, when we talk about His righteousness, it's not something I can earn, I can gain, but God gives it to you. And the last thing I want to share with you, and uh, to make it really count, is to receive the power of Christ. See, the power of Christ is what you receive when you, when you, when you commit your life to Christ, you receive this power. And this is not power to, to, to blow away mountains. or to. You know, this is a power to live this life that you need, to live this life as sin-free as possible. To be able to, 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 be able to uh, make it through this world in life without flying off the handle. God gives you that power, this resurrection power, to not only bring back to life Jesus Christ, but if He has this power to save you, He has this power to keep you. 
And you can't be wandering around saying, oh, man, I can't, I can't believe that the enemy won. You, you know, how, how big, how much power do you think God has? Oh, I can't believe, you know, I messed up. You know, it's just, oh, well, <clears throat> the power that God gives you is the power that, used, that was, was used to be able to raise Jesus Christ. Paul is talking about this resurrection power, and it's the power to save him, and it's the power to keep him. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in death. Then he concludes that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This, this term, the resurrection from the dead, it's, it's a biblical term. It's not used anywhere else because nobody else believes that they're going to resurrect. Not until Jesus Christ came on the scene, he resurrected, and now we have that promise. When we share this Lord's Supper today and we share this meal, we are proclaiming that Jesus Christ died on the cross and resurrected. And we know that one day we will share it with him when we are resurrected, either or He comes back again. That is the purpose of the power that God has given you, to keep you. It's a sustaining power. And you will not fail and fall if you keep plugged in. You have this power, the sustaining power, to receive what it is that God's given you. I just want to conclude with the last verse on your outline. And finally right? By, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. This, this wording, this canceling of the record of debt, it's an accounting firm, and it's accounting. And this is what Jesus Christ did. Paul says, I'm going to account everything that I used to have, and now I'm going to account everything that I do have. And, and I, I have now, I've received the knowledge of Christ. I have the righteousness of Christ. I have the power of Christ, which all of that outweighs everything. Everything else is just rubbish. Everything else is just rubbish. This is what I'm stuck with. This is what I'm staying with, not stuck with. You know, because now that I weigh it all out, but the rich and ruler, he weighed it out, and he says, oh, this, this is more important to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world, yeah. yet lose his soul? Yeah. Let me ask you to stand. Yeah. Father in heaven, we thank you for that great exchange. That great exchange that um, Jesus Christ did for us. He exchanged my sin for his righteousness. He exchanged my evilness for his glory. And Father, I pray that we can learn how to desire Jesus Christ even more so. Lord, we know that that is the ultimate and the great indicator of our genuineness of our faith. And so, Father, we, we not only desire to know Jesus Christ, but we also want to, be, um, we want to see the resurrection and the power that He has for us. So, Lord, I pray that, that we receive not only the righteousness of Christ, but also the power of Christ. And as we receive it, we understand it. Today, as we partake of this Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, we know it's a symbol of our salvation, of the things that you've already accomplished in our life. Man. As we take this, Lord, I pray that we can remember to examine ourselves. Do I desire to know you more? Do I desire to stay away from sin? Do I desire? Does sin make me sick? Does, do the things that I used to do, does it just break my heart as it breaks your heart? So, Lord, I know that these are just a few examples of the many that you have given us. 
So I pray that as we, as we go forward from this day forward, we grow closer and closer to you, I pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. So these are going to take partake of the supper. Just come forward, go to the back, and you'll find our... As I mentioned earlier, when Paul is talking to the people in Corinth, he was appalled at the news that he was hearing, and rightly so. And I pray that you had the opportunity to examine yourself, because this gives you a great opportunity to sin when we take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And in the same manner that... Uh, that Paul had instructed the people in Corinth. He says, And when he had given that, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this, this wafer, that this cracker that we have. It's a symbol, a representation of your body, on how your body was broken torn to pieces. And Father, we thank you that it reminds us of the cross, the cruel cross. So as we take this bread, we do so with humility and reverence and awe for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father in heaven, we thank you for this juice that you've provided for us. Lord, the color, the consistency reminds us of the blood that was shed on the cross for, Jesus, for us by Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we take this juice, we pray that you help us to remember that not only we look back, but we also look forward to the day that we'll be sharing this with you. Bless this juice and the vine that he comes from, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you once again for your love and your protection. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do. And as you dismiss us now, I just pray that you continue to guide us and lead us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. And amen. All right. Very good. Hey, Elisa. Mm -hmm.